Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Doss and D Show. Thank you so much for joining us. And today, the two of us are doing the intro. We are, mate. And there is special reasoning for that because we just got off the Zoom call with our guest for this week's podcast. We just had our 50th episode last week. We couldn't ask for a more bigger guest that we've ever had on the podcast to start... I guess the next half century, couldn't we, mate? An absolute childhood hero of ours. We actually have been bugging our parents over the past couple of days to send through our old photos and videos of us uh, being entertained by our guest. So who was it? Our very special guest was the original Yellow Wiggle, Greg Page. And what an honour it was to to have a chat with him over Zoom. What a lovely man he was, D. Mate, absolutely. Greg was just so genuine in his storytelling, generous with his time. He was so humble and we really learned a lot, didn't we? We spoke about a range of things. We did, mate. And don't worry, guys. We, we talked a lot of wheels. We talked a lot about the wheels and, and how they started and a bit of behind the scenes and what really happened, which was really, really awesome. But we got to know Greg the person behind the yellow skivvy and... We talked a lot about spirituality and, and the meaning of life and, and what life is all about, as well as, I guess, cardiac arrest. You're right, mate. He's so passionate about everything you just mentioned, but he went really deep in what happened to him with his cardiac arrest and now with his Heart of the Nation initiative that is sweeping Australia at the moment and getting bigger and bigger and the reasoning behind it. So it was very educational. Greg created the Heart of the Nation initiative or foundation, if you'd like to say, after he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest a year ago at an over-18s Wiggles reunion concert with all the original Wiggles last year. And since then, he's been spreading the awareness of why we need to educate the country and how we can help save more and more lives because it's just such a big killer. We won't keep you waiting any longer, guys. You'll hear all this and more. In Greg's own words, there's so many laughs, so many stories, and so much knowledge that he shares with us. You really hear the passion. Can't wait for this one. Everyone, please remember, go follow D underscore on Instagram. We're going to be putting out a lot of content, especially around now this episode. You'll see the videos. But without further ado, here's our interview with Greg Page. Welcome to the Dawson D Show. Two great mates striving to improve in all areas of their lives. The podcast is designed to empower everyday humans just like us who want to add more joy, energy and happiness into their daily lives. Sharing our real life experiences and everyday struggles, relating to them in a personal way. Expect uncensored stories, plenty of laughs, and tips and tricks to inspire you on your own journey. Now, let's go balls deep. Well, D, if I'm honest, I haven't had a wink of sleep all week because I've been so excited and pumped about, uh, I guess, the next guest that's about to come on our show today. Absolutely, mate. I'm the same. And everybody that I've spoken to, they're just as excited as we are. This is a true childhood hero of ours. And, mate, we can't be excited enough. Can no. We? Uh, and that hero of ours, uh, Greg Page, welcome to the Dawson D Show. Well, great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, mate, we are, we are over the moon. And uh, like we just mentioned off there, mate, we appreciate every bit of your time today. So thank you. Um, it's a pleasure. If you don't mind, can we start off with Greg Page, the kid? Uh, the very beginning, obviously music, and we'll get into later about, you know, everyone knows who you are, Greg Page, the yellow wiggle, but it's not just who you are. As a kid, you grew up in Western Sydney, you know, music always part of your life? As long as I can remember, yep. Going back to when I was three years old, I can remember wanting to put on shows for my parents and my family members when they'd come around. I'd sing songs, I'd get my toy instruments out and make whatever noise I could on those. Then around about the age of six, I started to learn to play guitar. Not very well. I didn't sort of stick with those lessons as much as I should have. But, yeah, no, music has always been a part of my life. I've always enjoyed listening to it. I've always enjoyed making music. And, yeah, it's just always been there. Who influenced you, Greg? Because I was saying to you off air before, I actually spoke to my mum and she sent photos of me performing to her as a child with a Wiggles microphone, mind you. And cool. I, was, I was imitating you. So who, who were you imitating as a, as a child? Uh, look, as a very young child, I, I don't know. I, I think probably not until I was about seven or eight, maybe even nine. I was into a guy called John Denver. Oh, I know John. Oh, yes. Oh, you do know John Denver? So he was kind of like a folk singer slash country singer. And there was something about his voice that just really resonated with me. And I loved listening to his voice. I loved some of the sentiments in his songs. You know, his songs were very much about a sense of place. You know, he was very much attached to the sort of country or rural areas of the USA. But also a lot of them were about a sense of, you know, romanticism. I guess, and just that, that longing for love and having that connection to somebody. That resonated with me too at a very young age. But 
the music was just very accessible, as is a lot of folk music and a lot of that sort of country-style music. It's very easy to listen to, rating on the ears. It doesn't offend anybody. It's just very easy to listen to. So, yeah, I guess the other stuff that I used to listen to, my parents used to play a lot of radio station that was big up here in the 70s called 2CH. And I, I can't remember what their sort of tagline was, but it was a lot of easy listening stuff. So Elvis, Dean Martin, Al Martino, some of these guys you probably haven't heard of either. But, um, yeah, it was that sort of crooner sort of music. And, yeah, I love that. I love the sound of that sort of music. So I think in a lot of ways that's influenced me in terms of appreciating music that is accessible to people. And I think that, you know, when we talk later on about the Wiggles and the sort of style of music that we wrote with the Wiggles, we wrote songs that were kind of accessible for all audiences. It wasn't offensive. So that's probably where music influences came from. Well, it must have been pretty special for yourself because I know I've heard you say you got to meet John Denver when you were over in the States and he came backstage and you got to meet him. No, not John Denver. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking of John Fogarty. Oh, John Fogarty, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, look, we were so wrapped to meet so many of these people, like John or like Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac, Jerry Seinfeld, Robert De Niro, musicians, actors. Yeah, it's a big, big moment, you know, much like even though it's through Zoom at the moment for you guys, but, you know, a similar kind of thing. These people that you grow up watching or listening to and you have this connection with for some reason Mm. meet them in person it's quite surreal and when you were actually growing up and in your teenage years what did you want to be what was your sort of goal in life what didn't i want to be firefighter police officer doctor you know you name but i think underneath all of that there was this sort of sense of knowing that i wanted to be a performer you know that being a firefighter being that sort of person i knew that whatever I wanted to do, it was going to be something that would have an impact on people's lives. So a firefighter, you know, putting out fires, saving houses, saving lives. Police officer, doing the right thing, catching criminals, trying to keep more order and, and peace. A doctor, making people better. A teacher, trying to educate people. So I've always had that kind of inclination in things that I wanted to do. I never wanted to be a builder or a truck driver or things like that. It was sort of more towards the service-oriented businesses. But, yeah, look, I, I think there was just always this underlying knowing that I wanted to perform and that's just where my path led me. Mm. What was it like, I guess, that first real experience performing in front of a crowd? Do you remember that? Not the very first time, probably, because I guess my first time performing in front of a crowd would have been when I was a kid. Of course. With, yeah. the, you know, with the Wiggles. Uh, or even before trying... the Wiggles. Yeah. Did, did, did you play oh, look, at school or anything? Yeah, yeah. So I was in a school band, a couple of school bands, different iterations of the school band. Um, and that was one of the things that excited me about the high school that I went to, the fact that they actually had a rock band. Mm. The fact that I could be part of that rock band, you know, really appealed to me. So I joined the school rock band in year seven and, yeah, we played some gigs at high school, you know, like music evenings at, at the school. We got a couple of gigs at, like, you know, the local netball club's end-of-year party or whatever. Then the band changed members because of the two girls that were singing at that point in time, they were in year 12, and when they left, I took over the vocals for the band, which was a bit of a challenge for me, but I enjoyed that. We started to play in band comps then, so band competitions that were, you know, battles of the band. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So we did that. And I always had a band outside of school as well. So we had the school rock band that had one of the guitarists that was in my band outside of school, and we did a lot of gigs with that band. Again, band competitions, but, you know, fates, school things, you know, other school concerts and whatever. So, yeah, it was it was pretty good. I, I don't... I can always remember feeling a bit of pressure on performing because you want to make sure you do a good job, you don't want people... And I've always had that sort of lack of self-confidence that people are going to be very critical of what I did. Mm. So I wanted to make sure I always did a good job and, yeah, it just was something that... I guess once I got to the Wiggles and you're playing in front of bigger crowds, I kind of lost that component of it. But you always still want to do a good show and you want to make sure that you're putting on the best thing that you can for the people that are coming to see the show. Can you clear something up for us? Because we've got a little bit of mixed information when doing some research about the cockroaches. So what exactly was your involvement there in meeting Anthony? Okay. So my involvement was this, that when I was in high school growing up, 
I was about 15, I think, and the cockroaches had the number one hit in Australia. It was on the charts at number one. And so I became a fan of their music. When I got to year 10, I had to do work experience and I wanted to be in the music industry. So I did a week of work experience at a recording studio and then I did another week of work experience with the cockroaches. It was year, year 11, not year 10. So for that one week, uh, I was doing work experience with the cockroaches. That's kind of really when I first met Anthony and, and Jeff and then Anthony's brothers as well who were part of the cockroaches. But I'd seen them play live a few times and I really loved what they did. When I was doing work experience, the road crew at the time said, anytime you want to come along and help out, you're more than welcome to come and help, you know, for free. Went back and I kept helping out and, you know, because I was a big believer in when a door is open for you and it leads to a path that you want to take, go down that path and see where it leads you because it could lead somewhere. And in this case it did. I kept going back, helping out, work experience for the cockroaches and their crew. I got to know Anthony a lot better and he sort of took me under his wing and said, well, what are you doing here? Why are you lugging for our band? I said, well, because I want to be in the music industry. He said, well, you're not going to want to be a roadie when you're 50 years old, which I nearly am now. And sure, no, I wouldn't want to be a roadie now and have been doing it for 30 years before this. He said, you don't want to be lugging gear upstairs at the age of 50. And he said, what else do you want to do? I thought about being a teacher because I knew that in my years of being at school as a primary school student, teachers would bring their guitar into the classroom and use music. And I thought, well, look, okay, I would be quite happy doing that. I can use my music to teach kids. And it was something that was kind of on my radar anyway. So Anthony at that point said, well, you should do early childhood teaching. You should come out to the campus where I'm studying at and find out about the course and see what you think. So long story short, I did that the Macquarie University Institute of Early Childhood and then that was the same course that Anthony was doing and also Murray. Murray from the Wiggles was there. Anthony, Murray and I got together and just started jamming on some songs and that's how the Wiggles then came about. I also heard, heard that uni course, there was, you know, 200 girls to one boy ratio, wasn't it? No, that's not right. It was 300. <laughs> <laughs> No, I left that bit out. I normally add that in there, but you're right. That, no, I'll, I'll just take it out, mate. Don't worry. Um, no, 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 that's fine. I, I just left it out because I thought oh, people have probably heard it before. But it's true um, because in teaching, it's a very female-oriented industry yeah. and traditionally has been. So, yeah, I think there was probably five guys at the whole of the university, so right across years one, two, and three, maybe more. There might have been six or seven, but there was probably like 600 girls. So it was, yeah, you're really outnumbered as a guy. Yeah because it's just not one of the things that a lot of guys do. I think there's probably more these days in that industry. I'm not sure, but I kind of get the feeling that there might be. Isn't it amazing as well, and I'm a big believer of this, but it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. And, and through doing a work experience with a band, it created an opportunity. And unfortunately, so many people don't get that opportunity. Um, but look at what it created for you. Yeah, look, it's... It's one of those things in life, you know, you, you just don't know what's around the corner. And I think when you are passionate about something, you you give it all. Like if, if I had a said to the guys on the road crew when I was doing work experience, if they had a said to me, you know, you're welcome to come and help out anytime you want, if I'd have said, well, yeah, only if, you, if I get paid, that opportunity wouldn't have been there. So it's an opportunity isn't always about what you get in return for it at that point in time that you're doing it. It's about what it can lead to and being open-minded about it and taking the opportunity, seeing where it leads to, and then letting it grow and see what it evolves into. Hmm. So did you firstly have a, a passion for early education? And if so, what was the thinking of integrating music in, in learning? That was really Anthony's idea, to be honest. I mean, I'd always known about the value of music and teaching and how it could work because I'd, I'd experienced that as a kid in primary school. I'd seen other artists like Patsy Bisco. Now, you probably don't know Patsy. Um, so she was kind of like one of the first kids' performers. Peter Coombe, you may have heard of Peter. I'm not sure. Well, Don Spencer is another one. So in my time when I was growing up, there were these artists for kids who were just a solo artist. They were basically folk singers that wrote songs for kids. The Wiggles was really the first group for kids. And because of our our rock backgrounds or our, our love of rock music and pop music, we combined that with our desire to write music for kids. So it became a very different product than what had traditionally been available. 
And so when Anthony had this idea, he'd been listening to a lot of kids' music, to stuff that Play School had put out. He'd been listening to artists from overseas. He'd been sort of analysing what was not missing from the market per se, but I think unknowingly he, he kind of had been doing a bit of market analysis and thought, you know what, we can do this. With what we know about teaching kids and what we love about music, we can put the two together and come up with something that's quite unique. So we did, and I think that first album that we put out in 1991, it wasn't all rock or pop music. There was a few sort of pop kind of tracks on there, but there was a lot of folky kind of stuff as well, and the Wiggles kind of realised after that that there was this niche where that rock and pop style could really grow. So when I talk about seeing an opportunity, following it and letting it grow, that's what happened with the Wiggles. We, yeah. we focused more on that rock slash pop style of music for kids rather than the sort of folky and the, the more educational style. And I put that word educational in inverted commas because what we wrote in the pop or rock style was still educational. We still kept those fundamentals about what we were doing. It's just the style of music was different to what most people were doing and that, that set us apart from everyone else. Was the songwriting process for you guys, was it difficult or did you guys find it as yourself and Anthony and Murray being, I guess, in that teaching industry, was it easier because you'd been and seen it for yourselves? Uh, it was easy to write songs. The challenge was to write songs that were going to be developmentally appropriate for kids. Yeah. So, and this is where a lot of people fall down in thinking that writing songs for kids is easy. Just write songs about tapping your hands and stamping your feet and that's all you've got to do. Well, there's a bit more to it than that. And particularly when you become as successful as the Wiggles did, having to write album after album after album for 20 albums or more, how do you do it? the same formula but making it different each time so that you're not repeating yourself too much. So that, that became a challenge. It wasn't hard, but it was something that kept us fresh all the time. Yeah, I was, I was looking and you guys were putting out a lot of albums. It seemed to be at least one a year, sometimes two a year. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then plus the videos, which we own a lot of and uh, we love them. And it's just yeah. incredible to think yeah, how much content you're putting out at such a quick pace. It was very frenetic. It was very, it, was that, it became very hard work because we were fitting that all in around our live shows because we were tour pretty much all of the year round. We, we had January off. I think we'd usually have just January off to coincide with the school holidays because um, Murray and myself had kids. So when they were off school for that six-week period, we liked to have that time at home. After that, we were basically touring most of the time. So it was very, very hard to fit that time into number one, record the albums and then videos that sort of went alongside of it. Sorry, the vacuum's just going no, fine. When you yeah, talk about, I guess, when you talk about those early shows, oh, you know, I still remember, and I know you did a lot of community centre shows before you even went into yeah. arenas. And it, it probably before the community shows, it was probably, I've heard you mention even uh, kids' parties. You know, uh, is that how it really started? Yep, preschools and birthday parties is basically how it began. So we'd turn up to a birthday party with 20 kids, 30 kids maybe, and, you know, if the birthday child was turning six, well, inevitably they'd have an older sibling and older cousins, and so they'd have all these 15-year-olds standing around going, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knew who we were at that point in time, and it was kind of a bit, you know, unknown. It was a bit strange, you know, these blokes turning up to do a bunch of songs for kids with a make-believe dinosaur costume, you know. So it was very... It didn't take too long for it to sort of go past that to become... Well, really, it was early in 1992 when we started doing bigger shows. Maybe June 92. We'd been performing for about 10 months or so and I was still at university. Murray and Anthony were teaching. So I was taking time off uni. They were taking time off teaching to go and do these concerts. And that's when we realised that, you know, we can sell out... 500-seat venue fairly easily, um, we should probably try to look at making a, you know, a living out of this. And we did. What, what was the process like for you guys performing? Can you take us backstage? Can you take us on the tours? Like, was it a demanding schedule? What was it like getting up day after day and performing and performing? I think it was, um, it varied. So in Australia, when we kind of started the touring, we were doing three shows a day. 
So we'd go to a, like a community centre somewhere. We'd, we'd turn up at probably 8 o'clock in the morning. We'd do all the setting up and everything ourselves. Be ready, do a sound check by sort of 9, 9.30. Doors would open at 9.30. So then we'd go backstage, get dressed. First show at 10 o'clock. That'd go till 10.50. Next show would be 11.30. Then that'd go till 12.20. Next show would be 1 o'clock. And then we'd pack everything down. Then we'd jump in the car and drive on to the next town, do it all again the next day. And that, that would be day in, day out for, you know, if we were doing a month-long tour, that's five or six days a week for a whole month. Then we'd come home for maybe a week. Then we'd head off again. So it was pretty grueling in that sense. But the saving grace for us was that we actually genuinely enjoyed what we did. So it was hard work. It was hard physical work, particularly in those days when we were doing all the setting up ourselves, doing all the performing. Um, but over time, it changed. So over time, we had crew members come on board and they'd do the setting up in the morning. We had people like Paul Paddock come on board, who was Captain Feathersword. We had other actors come on to play the suited characters of Henry, Wags and Dorothy. So as it grew, it changed. But also as it grew, it became more demanding because we'd end up doing four shows a day. Remember, there was one tour we did in Perth where we did six days in a row of four shows a day, 1,000 people every show. And that was off the back, I think, at the end of another, like, part of that month-long tour was three weeks of four shows a day, five days a week. So it was it was a massive amount of performing. So it was hard work. But, look, we, we loved it. We had our... We had our differences at times in the group, but, you know, who doesn't? And the overriding factor to this very day is that we're still good mates and we would have arguments about things, whether it be creative things or the fact that we were rooming together and, you know, we had differences, whatever. But it just was like, yeah, it was an incredible time. I was just going to ask that, you know, you're travelling together, you've, you've, you know, your best friends. You know, what, what a special thing to be able to do. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, to, number one, to, to have created this thing with our, you know, amongst friends, it wasn't a concocted thing. It just kind of happened organically. So it wasn't like we, and people will often say, you know, how did you come up with this plan to conquer the world? Well, there was no plan. We didn't plan to do anything other than one album. In fact, the very fact that it, was more than one album, took us all by surprise. To think now that it's going 30 years still after we began it and that Anthony's still <laughs> front and centre of it is just incredible. It's a real testament to him and his creative ability. Greg, how did you guys deal with fame? And another question I have for you as well is that for a normal rock band, we know how they tend to, to party. So you, you do a show, you party through the night. Obviously in your field, I'm first I'm guessing you guys are I don't know if you made a conscious decision not to go down that road. Like, how did you guys wind down after shows and, and tours? Well, after the shows, it really just was a matter of winding down in the Tarago, the old van, on the way to the next town. Yeah. We would all be hot and sweaty and just get changed and jump in the car because it wasn't for many years before we had, um, you know, wardrobe people and venues with showers and things that we could actually clean up at after the show. It was a very physical show. If you've ever seen a, a live Wiggles show, it's quite energetic and you end up sweating quite a bit. So, yeah, we'd just jump in the car and it was really that camaraderie that we had that kept us all together. And we, we used that camaraderie to not let ourselves get too big-headed about anything. So we'd always knock each other down if anybody sort of started to get out of line. But, yeah, it was just great. We There were lots of ways we'd wind down. So if we got to the next town on a tour here in Australia, we'd find the nearest RSL club. We'd go and have a meal at the RSL club at the bistro there, then we'd play a bit of pool or snooker after that, and then we'd go to the hotel and just wind down that way. The US was very different. Touring the US was actually really hard physically because we travelled overnight there most of the time because we would do much later shows. The US were used to having kids' shows in the evening. So we would do, I think, typically a 3 o'clock show and then a 7 o'clock show in the US. So the 7 o'clock show would finish about 20 past 8. Then because we were playing big arenas there, we had showers there so we could shower and freshen up. Then we'd jump on the bus and wait for the other crew members 
And generally, it'd be about nine o'clock before we could head off. And it could be a two-hour trip to the next town or it could be a six-hour trip, 10-hour trip or whatever, and then you'd have to get up and do it all again. So I have to ask, with, with uh, like just the success you guys had in the States, it, it is pretty remarkable and amazing just how massive you were over there, if not bigger over there than here in Australia. Mm. But for yourself personally, like it must have been pretty amazing being able to travel and see different spots and or, or did you not get to see much of the travel? You probably didn't. <laughs> not a lot. No, look, I think there were opportunities too, and I know some of the guys did take those opportunities. I didn't take as many as I probably could have, mostly because I was just so exhausted on my days off. I just wanted to relax. I didn't want to you know, try to work out how I'm going to get from the hotel to whatever site it is that I wanted to see. But occasionally we would, you know, particularly if we had a couple of days off in a row, but that was kind of rare as well. Generally, I think from memory, the US was mostly, you know, a day off here and there, and it was usually off the back of a big overnight trip. So if we travelled 10 hours and pulled into a place at 7 or 8 a.m., there might have been a day off then, and you don't want to go traipsing over the countryside to find things to see. But looking back, I probably wish that I had done that a bit more often, particularly in the US. I did a little bit more of it in the UK because the UK was more like touring here in Australia. It wasn't the overnight travel. It was the daytime shows, travel in the afternoon, get up and do the shows again. So it wasn't as gruelling the UK, and that afforded me the luxury of being able to do things like going and seeing Windsor Castle and you know things I wanted to see in, in the UK that really appealed to me. The US, though, it was, look, I loved it. I absolutely loved the US. I, I have a great affinity for the US, but it was a lot harder to tour. What year did you guys first tour internationally and the other question I have for you as well is you're obviously so humble giving us all this time but at what point do you guys go well we are huge like we've 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 got tv shows we've got albums we're selling out concerts arenas everybody knows who we are we're international what point does that mindset shift if at all look I don't know looking back on my life I was very young so I was 19 when the Wiggles started I was 21, 22, the Wiggles were quite big and, you know, we were on TV. And that, that period there was probably the hardest time. And if I look back, not, not hard, that's the time when I probably regret most how I acted as an individual uh, about all of that. It probably did go to my head a little bit. It probably did make me feel a bit self-important. And it took some time for me to kind of realise that it's not that that matters in life. You know, it's important to what you do. It's that success that breeds success and enables you to keep doing what you're doing, but it doesn't change who you are. It shouldn't change who you are. And I think that's, it took me a little while to, to learn that. And I got kind of lost in, you know, who is Greg Page as opposed to Greg Wiggle. So that identity struggle was probably the thing that affected me the most throughout the whole time of my career with the Wiggles because by the time I left the Wiggles, I think I'd been there for about 16 years, so 16 years before 19 years, it was nearly half my life, basically, yeah. Greg Wiggle. So. You've been a leader for all your life. So I look at you, like, becoming, you know, in your early 20s, starting the Wiggles, you've been a role model since you were, you weren't even a complete adult, really. You're still paving your way, finding, finding your way. I'm still not. <laughs> you know, and, and, but, and you're also still a massive role model now with the heart of the nation too, like you're, you're, you're doing it in other ways. What makes a good leader or role model in your opinion? You've been one your whole life. Uh, look, I, I don't know because I, I don't think of myself in that way. So I don't know. I mean, I would say that it takes somebody who has a vision, you know, of what things should be like, perhaps maybe of what things could be like, you know, because... I think when you look at things of, in the way of what things could be like, it's open-ended. If you look at things in the way of what things should be like, it's kind of restrictive. It's kind of defining it to say this is how it should be. When you say this is how it could be, it's saying it could be anything. So, And that's one thing I think I've learned from early childhood teaching is that it looks at things in a way that enables a child to look at life creatively. And I think that's something that I've always done. I've looked at life in a creative way, not a prescriptive way, like not saying, okay, well, life is growing up, getting a job, getting married, having kids, settling down, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, sure, there's that kind of underlying path that people recognise. There's a lot that can be done in life 
by following opportunities and seeing where they take you and being creative about the way you think. It's not always about one thing. It's one thing you're doing at this point in time. That one thing that you're doing right now, who knows if you're going to be doing it tomorrow? Who knows if you're going to be doing it in 20 years' time? What's important is that that one thing you're doing right now, you absolutely love doing it. Because when you're in that mode of loving what you do, it enables you to see things differently. Because as soon as you're in a, in a job you hate or place you don't like being, once you're trapped in that zone, you don't see the potential outside of that. You see just that dark space that you're in and you just feel trapped. When you are loving what you do, you see the universe as potential for anything. And how you can harness that or how that manifests is up to you because you can control your next step. That is phenomenal advice. I was thinking one of my next questions is going to be what would wow. be your advice for somebody like our age or younger for, for following passion? And yeah, we, we talk about that all the time. It's one of our big things about not necessarily following the steps of, like you said, getting married, getting a degree, getting a job, yeah. retiring. The, the rule book. The rule book, yeah. The rule book, yeah. yeah. Throw the rule book out the window. There's, there should be no rule book, okay? Yeah, we've got to have rules and laws about how we interact and things like that. But for life, there's no rule book. The rule book is... Do what you love. Do what makes you happy. Because when you're, you know, if you get into what they call the spiritual zone, and we look at things in a spiritual way, they talk about vibration. When you're doing something that you love, your energy vibrates in a certain way that it attracts other things that are like. It's like a magnet, right? The magnet will pull things that are attractive to it. When you are vibrating in a way that's attractive to things that are like, pull them in and you'll keep having those positive experiences. So that's why doing what you love and loving what you do is the best advice that I can give to anybody. Law of attraction. You, would have, been, you would have been a great teacher. Yeah. <laughs> if you're uh, a weird question maybe, but if you actually did go down that teaching path, do you think you would have taught kids in a different ways than maybe our education system currently is in terms of thinking a bit more outside the box, freely, like an artist like yourself? Do you see you know, a need for more important life lessons in the education system. Yeah, I do. It's, it would be hard to get them in, I think, because education system is founded on a sort of more scientific approach and evidence-based approach. You know, I think one of the things that we don't do enough of is building up a child's self-love. You know, they talk about self-esteem and a lot of things, but the biggest problem we have in the world today is the fact that people don't love themselves enough. And that manifests in so many ways, you know, in domestic violence, suicide, depression, bullying, all of these things come from the fact that people are unhappy with themselves and they take it out on other people. They see people that they aspire to be like and they don't like them for that because they see in somebody else things that they want and they can't have that. They see things in other people that they don't like about themselves as well. So it's a very, very difficult situation because the human mind basically controls so much of who we are. As soon as we believe that we are enough, we are okay, we don't have to be anything other than who we are, the sooner we can all accept that other people are like that too, with their faults, with their misgivings, no matter what they do, we don't have to compare ourselves to others because we are okay as we are. That's I love that because this, Greg, is kind of why we wanted to start the show was we were both, well, to be honest, we were both very self-conscious about our body image as kids, both of us. We were both overweight, myself and Daniel, and we were both friends and we went through that period of, of you know, not wanting to, not loving ourselves. And now that we're a bit older, we're like, you know, we want to start something that actually encourages this. So your words there are just perfect. Thank you. Good. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's hard. And, I mean, the whole, the whole thing about not loving yourself also involves that thing of beating yourself up. You know, if you're a bit overweight and you have a bit of food that you probably know you shouldn't have had, you tend to beat yourself and go, oh, why did I do that? With anything, any bad decision that somebody makes, a decision that they think is bad, they'll beat themselves up about it generally. But you can intervene and you can look at things differently. So it's about what is the outcome you want and framing that 
in a positive way rather than saying, oh, you know, gosh, I need to lose weight. I need to... No, you don't need to lose weight. I want to be healthy. I want to be this. I want to be that. Don't live a life of lack. You know, live a life of aspirations. So don't look at what it is that you're missing out on. Look at what it is you want to be and use that as a, a goal to strive towards. And when you strive towards a goal, rather than trying to shed off the things that you don't like about yourself, those things will fall off anyway because you're heading towards a more positive place. So the things that are negative about yourself or whatever it is that you don't like, they'll fall by the wayside as you move towards that positive goal. And it just happens naturally. It's like natural attrition. I think we're getting a, a clear in the longevity of the Wiggles right now. You've spoken about your passion for entertaining, but just clearly just you talking right now and hearing your passion for all this is it's really nice to hear because it just proves that Greg behind the yellow wiggle, there was just so much more to you. And I think it's a real clue in the longevity of the wiggles and the success of the wiggles. Is this something that has always been in you or is this something you've learned along the journey? Uh, look, to be honest, I think I've learned it along the journey. I think it's always been there. I think everybody has it. It's just unlocking it. So it's always been there, but I've learned it. And look, I look back on my life. I've, I've made really bad decisions. I've done stupid things. I've done things I wish I'd never done. I've hurt people I've, like everybody does. So I'm by no means perfect. Nobody is. And that's the key. But it's when you can look at yourself and acknowledge that you've done those things that you're not happy about, that's when you can change the next step that you take. That's when you can change your future. That's how we, we look at the open ended possibilities of what can be rather than focusing on being trapped in that moment of, gosh, I wish I hadn't have done that. And you just focus on the negative. You focus on what you did wrong, what you don't like, all those negative thoughts and feelings and that little bubble that traps you. You can't see the possibilities when you're in that space. It took a long time for me to sort of realise it wasn't until I left the Wiggles probably in 2006 that I started thinking about life differently. You know, I'd been raised uh, as a Christian and I'd learned a lot about the Christian faith. When I left the Wiggles, I was going down more of a spiritual path because of a number of experiences that I'd had and that led me to, to reading books about the law of attraction and different things that sort of led me to think differently. And like I said, it was something that I know I'd always believed in but didn't recognise it because society doesn't teach us to think that way. Now, we don't get taught to look at life as being something that you can not control, because control is not a good word, right? Something that you can create. Life is something that you can create, and you can create a life for yourself that looks whatever way you want. It might not always work out the way that you envisage it, but if you hold that vision, like we did with the Wiggles, right? We had a vision of what the Wiggles could be. As long as we stayed true to that vision, we were propelling ourselves towards that Times when we tried to change things and move away from that, that's when it didn't take us towards that happy place. So, yeah, the Wiggles made bad decisions about things. We did things that we tried new things that didn't work because it broke away from that philosophy that underpinned all of the things that were propelling us upon that path to success. So when we changed that, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel good. So it's the same with life. When you make those decisions that take you away from where you want to be, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right until you change things up and get back on that path. Amazing. Going back to, you mentioned 2006 when you left the Wiggles, can you maybe speak a little bit about that and your health? And I guess since that um, moment, it just sounds like your, well, your spiritual awakening was a part of that when you left because of your health concerns and I guess your health issues. Yeah, look, it was. It was a pretty tough time because... What I ended up being diagnosed with was a condition called orthostatic intolerance, which means that my body doesn't like being in an upright and static or you know, non-moving position. And it's something that when I got that diagnosis, I kind of went, oh, yeah, I can relate to that now. Being at high school and standing in long assemblies, having to stand up for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I'd always feel like I was going to pass out. I never did back then, but I had that feeling. A lot of people will get that. Now, happened for me over time with the wiggles because I sweat a lot. I'd become very dehydrated and dehydration makes that condition a lot worse. So by the time 2006 came along, I'd been sweating so much fluid out of my body, no matter how much water or Gatorade we drink between shows, during shows, whatever, I was very, very dehydrated. So at the end of 2006, I just started collapsing 
couple of times on tour, came back home, the doctors conducted a whole range of tests, tried to work out what was wrong. Nobody could find anything for about two or three weeks. And I just said to the guys, look, I'm going to have to quit because I don't know what's wrong with me. I know I, there's no way I can do any shows. So I resigned from the group. About a week later, I got the diagnosis of what the problem was. That whole process was very, very grueling on me mentally because not knowing what's wrong with you and being told that it could be something that's potentially terminal, that weighs on you a bit. Um, but the other thing that was going on too was I was going through a marriage breakup with my first marriage. So that was playing on me emotionally. So I had this kind of physical and emotional turmoil happening at one time. So, yeah, it led me to looking at life in a different way and reading about things and just seeing, you know, is there something more to, you know, this whole thing that is life more than what I've been led to believe through learning about Christianity. And I, I think that religion has a part to play in life for sure. I think it's a great way of looking at life and people need that uh, in a lot of ways. For me, when I looked at life a little bit differently, it just opened up my eyes so much more to how that all, like what that all meant. As a Christian, how do we arrive at that spot? Mm. I, uh, I relate so much to what you're saying there, Greg, because, and I'll be completely open and honest, today, this morning, I actually saw a counsellor and I hadn't seen a counsellor for probably nearly 12 months. And I mentioned to her, I lost my dad uh, five years ago and I said, yeah. I've been raised a Catholic all my life, very spiritual Catholic faith. But when that happened, that incident with my dad, it just it made me think differently and read into different books and look into law of attraction and vibration, like you say. And she mentioned it today. The counsellor, she was beautiful. She was so nice. And she was saying to me, it's okay to open your eyes to other things because we are all one. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, look, I'm just, number one, sorry to hear about the loss of your, your dad. That, that would be a very, very tough thing. So at that age where we're young males, we kind of need that male role model in our lives. But I also commend you on seeing a counsellor and getting help because, like I've been saying, our mind controls who we are. When we let our thoughts go down that path, not productive or not conducive to allowing us to benefit, then it's not a good thing. So counsellors can be a very good way of trying to resolve those thoughts. And I think that, yeah, we are all one. We are all one energy. We And, and this is where there is such a correlation between Christian teaching and a more spiritual way of looking at things. You know, a Christian will say, yeah, look, God lives within each and every one of us. We are one. We are all one, right? We come from source energy. That's how a spiritual person would talk. We are all source energy. We have that energy within us. It's the same thing. They just put it in a different context. It's, it's so universal. That one concept is so universal. Then you've got things like the law of karma, then do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Um, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. All of these things go across so many different philosophies and religions in life, but there is definitely something to it. There's something greater out there than all of us. We just don't know what that is. We try to categorise it in different ways. We try to quantify it, but because we can't see that, that's the challenge. And I think, too, that understanding things is to look at Aboriginal Dreamtime stories. How are things created? humankind has wanted to try to put things in a human context for so long because we see these incredible things around us, mountain ranges, rivers. Life itself is so worth celebrating. How did it all happen? How on earth did we get to this point where we have these intelligent creatures roaming around the earth? We have animals, we have plants, we have beautiful nature everywhere. Humans want to try to understand that. So years and years and years, people have tried to put that into a context that other humans will understand. And that's, that's how we come up with religions and philosophies and ways of trying to understand who we are and how we got here. Yeah, I, I love that, Greg, because it's funny. It's very topical for me because these are the discussions I've been having lately as well. I was brought up Christian as well. The Wiggles uh, Nativity Christmas um, <laughs> videos, yeah. I, was, I was through the church every year and... and that's a fond yeah. memory for me as well. But like you say, there's so many cultures that have such similar teachings and philosophies about how everything started. But why do we all fight? You know, we're all believing almost the same thing. We just have a yes. different understanding of what God means to us or universe means to us or whatever. We're fighting over the same principles. It's crazy, isn't it? It's a real shame because, as you say, it really does come down to a lot of commonality. Yeah. There's amongst it that 
is divisive. And I think that 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 really demonstrates the power of religion. You know, there is a lot of power in religion. It's very powerful and people respond to that because they need they need that thing in life to hold on to, that, that faith. But after this life, that there is something more there and that's what people want to know. And they want to know that whilst we're here, we are doing the right thing towards others. You know, it's like anything. When you get conflict about ideas, there's always that underlying tension about, you know, if you, you two guys have different ideas on something you want to do, you'll argue about it for a while. You'll experience that because your ideas aren't aligned. When there's misalignment of any kind, that's misalignment of energy, and that's just the universal law of energy, meaning that there's disruption to the vibration. We'll, uh, we'll probably be arguing where we're going to go get lunch after this, probably, so... Um, <laughs> but, uh, It'll be a late lunch. <laughs> I would love to now get into uh, Greg now like where you are now and, and what you're working on now. Can you please explain to the listeners what the Heart of the Nation is and why you've created the Heart of the Nation? So Heart of the Nation is a charitable initiative that I set up last year, probably around about May last year, after I suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. The original Wiggles show we, we did in January to raise money for the bushfires. Yeah, I collapsed at the side of the stage and, uh, you know, I wouldn't be here now if it weren't for people that knew how to do CPR. And the fact that there was an AED at the venue we were performing at, so a defibrillator. And I've learned a lot in the last 12 months about cardiac arrest and the fact that, you know, I was one of the lucky 10% that survive a cardiac arrest. It's just incredibly low survival rate. And when I survived, I realised that I could use my profile, my story, my notoriety to try to raise awareness about this. And... Part of that for me was the fact that I didn't know anything about an AED before I needed one to save my life. And I realised that they're actually in a lot of places out in the community and I've walked past many of them but never realised because typically an AED is housed in a white cabinet with a green and white sticker on it that says AED and sometimes it's even got a plus sign on it. And I always thought that was a first aid cabinet and now I know it's an AED. So I came up with this concept that if you are a business or anywhere that has an AED inside the business, you can sign up to the Heart of the Nation initiative, which means that you can stick this sticker on the front door or window of your business and let people know that you've got an AED because if you've got an AED inside your business and somebody goes into cardiac arrest in the car park, on the sidewalk, around the corner, in the shop next door, whatever, if they know there's an AED in that place, they can go and get it and try to save a life because, quite frankly, the AED is what gives people the best chance of surviving a cardiac arrest. It's not the CPR. CPR is very important, but the only thing that's going to restart that person's heart is the AED. So having that AED is crucial to lifting the survival rate from cardiac arrest. So acknowledging places that have an AED by saying, look, you're, you're at the heart of the nation in the fight against cardiac arrest and we acknowledge you for that. We want the community to know where you are and that you've got an AED. That's so important. So that's really where the whole idea came from. It's so commendable what you're doing. We see you on LinkedIn all the time talking about it. And I think the nature that you're so approachable is so big. And I just love the advice that you sort of give out. I've seen the videos. I saw something you wrote last week, which is a very detailed writing of what you went through. I saw that on LinkedIn. I thought that was very good. So how can we all get behind you? How can What's the best way for everyday Australians to support you to get this message across? Look, I think just to create awareness, create noise about this issue because sudden cardiac arrest kills 20,000 Australians every year, if not a little bit more than that, probably. And with only a 10% survival rate, one thing that bugs me a lot is that the government spends so much money on, on the roads. A lot of that is because of the road toll. The road toll is probably 1,200 people every year, something like that, 1,200. They spend billions of dollars. I know that people need the roads. There's a lot more use behind it as well, but they'll upgrade black spots where people are dying because it's a problem. What the government's not spending money on is putting AEDs out in the community. They're not getting enough of these devices out into the community where they're going to make a difference. That's something that I think really lacks. So for people to help we need more places to have AEDs and more people to sign up to Heart of the Nation. So if you've got an AED, sign up to this, it's free. We send you out these stickers, no cost. You can become a member of the Heart of the Nation. You can be celebrated for playing your part in the chain of survival. But 
for anybody to just understand that when someone's in cardiac arrest, any attempt at resuscitation is better than no attempt and you can't make the patient worse. That's two powerful bits of information because when somebody's not responding and not breathing, the only outcome that's guaranteed is death if you don't do anything. If there's no intervention, that person will die. So you need to do something. You need to call triple zero, you need to start CPR, and you need to use an AED if there's one available. So call, push, and shock. They're the three simple links in the chain of survival that bystanders can use to try to save a life. And you don't have to be qualified in CPR to have a go at doing it. And probably the ambulance time, I'd be fascinated to know, like it probably only it'd be 10 minutes or, I don't know, 15 minutes before an ambulance arrived. You would know that. So, yeah, here's, here's the shocking stat. The national average for ambulance response times to a code one is 18 minutes. Now, code one, a threatening emergency. Now, 18 minutes. With cardiac arrest, for every minute that passes without defibrillation, your chance of survival decreases by 10%. After 10 minutes, you've only got an 18% chance of being revived. So if you're waiting on on an ambulance to come up with their defibrillator to try to shock you, you don't get that shock there delivered before 5, 10, 15 minutes. Your chance of survival is very, very low. So for me, the ambulance was about 12 minutes away. And as they were arriving, I was just coming to from the second shock from the AED. So they shocked me twice, and that was about the 12-minute mark with that second shock, bang, and then the ambulance was arriving. Now, there's a very interesting thing. I I might send you this so you can put it up uh, on the video or somewhere. The AED does a readout of what your heart is doing at the time that the pads are on there. And it shows the waveform of the heart. They they call it an ECG. The rhythm is generally something broad like that. It's high like. With cardiac arrest, as I said, over time, your chance of survival decreases because that heart rhythm gets narrower and narrower and narrower until it gets to the point where it's flatline. When you're in flatline, the AED won't work. It won't bring you back to life. Now, the AED readout from my event shows that by the time that second shock came about, my heart rhythm was very, very low indeed. So I was getting very close to flatline. So 12 minutes, the AMBOs were there. If the AED hadn't got me back, the AMBOs would have had to get their defibrillator out, get me prepped. Could have been another minute or two after that, 14 minutes. Another two minutes of drifting towards flatline could have been a very, very close call indeed. That's one reason why the survival rate is so low because ambulance response times don't allow them to get to a cardiac arrest quickly enough to save so many lives. That's why these devices, AEDs, are so important because they can make a huge difference. Greg, like you're such a fit-looking guy and you've been performing all your life. Has anybody given you a reason why this happened to you or was it one of those things? Yeah, so I had heart disease that I didn't know about. So I've got... I had plaque in my arteries. So we often hear about heart disease and we hear about the warning signs. You know, if you get chest pain, if you get short of breath, if you have high blood pressure, if you've got family history, if you're a smoker, all of these things. Well, I had none of that. I had none of those risk factors. I could exercise very easily. I was playing competition cricket, competition tennis. I was walking seven and a half Ks every day or thereabouts every day. If I wasn't walking, I was at the gym working out. And I had none of those warning signs at all. So what happened was at the show, because of the intensity of the Wiggles show being a very physical thing, blood was flowing around my heart quite a lot that night. High heart rate, lots of blood flowing through it. It knocked a little bit of plaque inside my arteries off. So that then attracted blood to clot around it. It clotted off the artery 100%. So within a few, well, look, I, I didn't have, I don't remember having any pain or anything at all. I just collapsed because my artery blocked off and then that was it. I remember lying on the floor and just feeling absolutely exhausted, but I was struggling to breathe and I remember those breaths. It felt bad, but I just thought I was out of breath. I didn't know how bad it was. Um, but, yeah, it was down to heart disease basically. But interestingly, 50% of sudden cardiac arrests are made up of people that have heart disease but don't have any warning sign at all. 20,000 Australians having a cardiac arrest every year, around 10,000 of those people, that's the first time they know there's something wrong and only 10% survive. 
it really is sudden cardiac arrest for a reason. That's baffling. And I'm trying to find, I'm trying to work out how do they find out if they have heart disease? Can they not? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Well, look, the doctor said to me, if I'd have gone in that afternoon for a stress test, so there are tests that they can do, if I'd have gone in for a stress test, it still wouldn't have picked up the fact that I had a blockage there because the blockage wasn't significant enough to be causing me symptoms. But the fact was, and this happens, uh, I was going to say it happens a lot. That's not the right word to use. It happens with people playing sport, particularly older people like myself that have minor heart disease or a bit of heart disease, but not enough to give them symptoms under normal conditions. Mm. Go out, they'll play cricket, they'll run around madly. All of a sudden, bang, they'll drop dead because that bit of plaque's broken off. But cardiac arrest isn't caused only by heart disease. There's a lot of things that can cause it. And it can happen to fit young guys like yourself. One of our ambassadors for Heart of the Nation is a 24-year-old in Melbourne who had a cardiac arrest in January this year. He was running around playing futsal, indoor soccer, um, and collapsed the cardiac arrest. Nothing to do with heart disease or a heart attack. It's totally different. Um, he just had an electrical issue with his heart that he had no idea about. So for people like him, people like myself, no warning and you could be gone like that and your family suffers you know, it's just so tragic, you know, and it has a flow-on effect, as you know, loss. You know, it's not one life that's affected when somebody dies. It has a flow-on effect, and this issue doesn't get enough attention. You know, cancer gets a lot of attention, road deaths, workplace deaths and injuries. A lot of other things get a lot of attention, and this one doesn't. It's getting more attention now, I think, and it needs a lot more. And then we can change the survival rate because we really should be seeing 40 to 50% survival rates for cardiac arrest. It's it's scary, actually. I, I don't know if he... Was it was Christian Eriksen in the Euros? Was that a, Yeah, the did soccer. You, did you see that, Greg? Yeah, um, I saw that. And, yeah, the, the thing about that one, I think the media have a, a role to play in this as well in terms of educating the community about it. So when I saw that story, they were describing it as, you know, he collapsed on the field. At that point, they weren't... I guess not sure. But as soon as I read they were doing CPR, I thought, he's had a cardiac arrest. I mean, that's the only time you really do a a CPR is when somebody's had a cardiac arrest. Then this is where, too, a lot of things get misreported as being a heart attack. Now, I didn't see it in in the case of Christian Erickson, but I didn't see enough people reporting it as a cardiac arrest. I still kept seeing it reported as he collapsed during a game. You know, now, he collapsed, yes, But what made him collapse? That's what people need to know because it happens a lot in sport. And when it happens, particularly with young people, it doesn't get diagnosed quickly enough. They'll see people fall over and they'll just think, oh, he must have fainted because people misconstrue cardiac arrest and heart attack, the same thing. So they'll see a young person fall down and think, oh, well, it can't be a heart attack. He's too young to have a heart attack, so he must have fainted. It must be a seizure. We'll put him on his side. We'll do this. We'll do that. They don't initiate the correct response quickly enough to make the difference. Now, luckily for someone like Jesse, who I was talking about before, somebody recognised that he wasn't breathing and they started CPR straight away. So it comes down to just being able to think through what's going on, what's happening right in front of me, what can I do to make sure that the best outcome possible is had here. Mm. And uh, probably as well, um, anyone listening, like our age too, that's really shocked me as well hearing that because Mm. I'm like, wait, like we need to become more aware I actually had an ECG on my heart a few weeks ago because I had a chest infection um, and they just wanted to check everything. But it's made me also realise, you know, check your family history. Has your, has your family got heart any heart disease in your family? Yeah, look, it's one of those things. Our health is something we often take for granted. And we, you know, particularly for me, even though my wife is actually a cardiac nurse, say, you know, don't eat the sausages tonight, you know, don't eat the fatty foods, that kind of stuff. I would think, okay, well, I, I, I won't or I won't have as much of that, but I don't think I'm at risk of, of that. You know, that's not me because I don't have family history. I don't smoke. I don't have diabetes. I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have all those risk factors. Plus, when I exercise, I don't have any symptoms. I don't have any signs to be worried about. Little did I know that there was something going on inside that nearly took my life. I think it's it hits home for me too, Greg. My, um, my dad is a diabetic and only two or three weeks ago now, he had his leg amputated. And it was subtle. He was a diabetic for 15 years. He noticed one night that his foot was swelling up a little bit. The next day, he rushed to hospital, nearly lost his life and had his leg amputated. And as for me, I just I assume, well, I, I eat the right food, I exercise enough, but I've never really, 
I've never even considered that it's in my bloodline. And I think it's just, just even hearing you talk about it and your passion for it, I think it's, it's just good for our listeners if they've got anything that's going on in their Something life. Something doesn't feel right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, Doss is very big on health anxiety and getting checked. I struggle with it a lot. <laughs> I'm always yeah, right. little needle and pain. I'm at the doctor. Which, yeah. yeah. Um, it's probably like, a good thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, don't let it rule your life, but it's something to be aware of, right? You need to be in tune with your body and what it's telling you. And if you're not, you can let things get to the point where you can't change it and it's too late. So to be aware is one thing um, and just make sure that you do listen yeah. to me and what it tells you. Greg, I, I want to ask one more question. And if you're up for it, we've got a few quick fire questions if you're, if you're up for that, just to finish on a, on a yeah. live note. But before we get there, I just... For the next sort of the next chapter of your life, where do you see yourself? Do you want to get back into entertainment, or are you more focused on heart of the nation, or is there something else that you want to try? What's next for Greg Page? Oh, look at the moment. I'm very focused on heart of the nation. I think there's a role for me to play in that space, and I I'm, I think we're making some changes there. Where we're having some sort of effect. Um, but look, like I've always been saying, you know, it's, it's a path that I'm on at the moment. Who knows where it's going to lead? So things can change. I don't have any sort of ambitions to get back into into entertainment per se, but who knows what the future holds. You know, I, I, I use my entertainment skills to write songs now to educate about CPR and the, the chain of survival. So if I can use those skills there, then I will. But look, no, at the moment, life's life's great. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm alive. I'm here. Mm-hmm. I can hopefully make a difference. Great. Awesome. Yeah. You want to kick us off? we got some, uh, some questions. Whatever comes to your mind, Greg. Oh, I'm worried now. They're all no, they're all generated. Worried. Don't be worried. <laughs> so, have you got a favourite song, Wiggle song? Oh, look, I've got several, but I'll say, can you point your fingers and do the twist? Love that classic. Why it's Why yellow? Why yellow? Because Anthony beat me to the blue coloured skivvy at the shops. Well, you got a blue one on today. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I do like blue. Blue Blue is actually my favourite colour. Favourite sports team? Ooh, gee, well, the Australian cricket team. I love cricket, so I'm going to say that. Well, I'll have to ask now, are you a batter or a bowler or are you an all-rounder? Look, a little bit of an all-rounder. I wouldn't say I'm great, but certainly more so last season I was probably more of a batter than a bowler, but I do both. Coming in at what number? What number would you bat? Uh, like they've tried me opening, so I'm usually up the order. Facing the new ball. Does Jeff snore in real life? I don't think he does, no. <laughs> Do you know, just, just an off topic, mum told me, I have to mention this to you, when Jeff used to wake up on the videos, I was so terrified, I used to run out the room and then you know, <laughs> mum would stand there and say, okay, he's up, he's awake now and I can come back out. That's just a, wow, that's okay. Yeah, I didn't know Jeff waking up was that scary. <laughs> I don't know either, Greg. I don't know. Who was the most uncoordinated dancer of the original Wiggles? Uh, well, look, I, sh- I should say myself, but if I want to be honest, it's probably Jeff. It's probably funny. He was pretty pretty uncoded at times, but he- he'll acknowledge that himself. So I'm okay to, to dump him under the bus there. Oh, and this one's a good one after chat today because you seem very, oh, you just seem very spiritual. Quote that you like to live by. Do what you love, love what you do. That's probably it, I reckon. Uh, most memorable Wiggles concert? Gosh, I don't know. There's so many, so many. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. I'm sorry. Fair enough. And, uh, I mean, which I guess is kind of good, right? Because yeah. it means I don't hold any one of them above any other. I enjoy yeah. all of them as much as every other one. Yeah. And lastly, what's one thing you couldn't live without? Jeez. Well, a good heart. Yeah, that's a good great one. answer. Uh, Greg, mate, we can't thank you enough yeah. for your time today. Uh, we're going to walk away from this and just be smiling for the next month I reckon yeah. we're, uh, we're just oh. blown away and we, we can't thank you enough for your time I just want to acknowledge you for the work you're doing from a personal level you brought so much joy to, to my life and my family's life you really have and now getting to, to have a chat with you it's uh, it's pretty surreal it, it means more to us and, and honestly you could know I was talking to my parents yesterday and I was saying isn't it funny we're looking at these videos and it was 22 years ago I was dancing in front of a screen and your, your face is there and I'm still trying to get my numbers right on my fingers, but um, <laughs> now it's just, yeah, it just, it really does mean the world to us. So we can't thank you enough, but also we can't let you go without asking, you know, how do people get involved? What's the easiest way for Heart of the Nation and to support you and what you're doing? Yeah, look, I mean, if people want to, they can make donations to Heart of the Nation on our homepage. There is a, a little button there you can click on, donate via PayPal. That would be really helpful. But look, I, I think just general awareness. So just talking about cardiac arrest, raising awareness in the community, mentioning it to people that if they don't have a defibrillator, then they could get one. If they do have one, then they can sign up to Heart of the Nation. But 
But I think awareness is key in this matter. And so any awareness is just appreciated. Awesome. Beautiful. We'll leave it at that. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, guys. And don't argue too much about what you're going to have for lunch. (laughs) Keep the positive vibes going. Thanks, mate.